Good evening and welcome. I'm stoked that you could be here. In fact, um, why don't you say to the person next to you, I'm stoked that you could be here. Even if you don't mean it, you just say that to them now. <laughs> the, um, all right, that's it. You're stoked enough, that's fine. Now, um, the, reason, uh, the, reason, the reason I'm stoked that you could be here tonight is that even though we're only looking at two verses, oh no, not to do that again, right? Even though we're just looking at two little sentences from God's Word, if you understand this stuff, it's completely life-changing. And I believe God has something to say to you tonight, whether you're here and you're a Christian and you're already following Jesus, or whether you're a Christian who's really struggling with that at the moment, whether you're someone who's unconvinced, whether you're someone who's just, you were tricked into being here. Someone said to you, hey, just come along to this youth thing on Friday night. There's going to be lots of girls there. And you got here and you found out it was Christian and it was too late. You couldn't find the exits and get out. Even if that's you, it's great that you could be here because I think this word is for you. And I think it matters because I know a little something about what high school is like for you guys. I used to teach in high schools. So my first job was at Riverside Girls High when I was just a brand new teacher. My first job, 22 years old, I taught at an all-girls high school. And on my third day teaching at this school, I saw something that I didn't expect to see in my first year of teaching at a girls' high school. I was just finishing up at the end of lunch. We'd been doing sort of like a a touch footy training thing. And at the end of that, I was packing all the gear up And I saw all these girls streaming into one area of the playground. And now I thought there's really only going to be two options for what's going on here. Either Supre is having a 90% off sale in the middle of a girls' high school, or there's a fight. And when I got there, what I saw was, of course, the second option. There was a fight going on. Now, I don't know if you've seen a lot of girls' fights. Some of them are quite frightening, but a lot of them involve a lot of this. And that's mostly what was going on. It was just two windmills going at it, a lot of hair grabbing and all this kind of stuff. And I run to it, right? And this is my third day of teaching, so I have no idea what you're supposed to do in this situation. And my main concern is that I don't end up on a current affair for doing something improper. So I run into the situation, and and there's a teacher standing by, and she's doing nothing, right? So the brand new teacher has to do something. So I go in, and I push them apart by the face. Safety first, right? Just by the face. And I try to take control of the situation, so I grab the one who I think looks like started it because she was wearing TNs. Yep, okay. I wasn't sure if that was to the coast thing. Yeah, she had like the polo hat and everything, so I thought she must have started it. So I send the other one with the other teacher, and I take this one, and I'm trying to maintain my authority as a teacher because I'm brand new and I have no idea what to do. And so I say to her, right, you're coming with me. We're going to the principal's office. So I march her down the hall, and partway down the hall, I realise something. And I try to maintain my swagger as I do this, but I've realised something that's gone wrong and I I turn around and I say, with as much authority as I can, right, where's the principal's office? (laughs) And so she has to march me to the principal's office so she can get in trouble. But it's funny, in my first year of teaching, I came across some situations that they don't really prepare you for in college and a lot of them I wasn't ready for. There were some tough kids that we taught. There was one girl in my class who who called me the kind of things that would make some of you guys blush, right? She said some incredible things in classroom time. And the weirdest thing about it was often after class, she would come up and apologize for it later. And she genuinely felt bad. 
And so I was struggling to work out how do you deal with some of these really difficult cases. Another girl in my class um, was, was crazy in class, but I'd found out she'd been to juvenile hall and been beaten within an inch of her life. And I can imagine giving her life why she was a little bit acting up at school. So I went, I went to one of those schools that deals with kids with really serious, difficult sort of behaviour uh, disorders. And I met the principal of that school and he gave me an insight that really helped in understanding where some of these kids were coming from. And he said, some of these kids come to school and they're used to being rejected. And so what they try to do in classrooms is they try to recreate the home environment in the school. And if they're used to rejection, what they'll try and get you to do is to reject them. Because they believe, I must be a bad kid because people reject me and therefore I should act bad so people will reject me because I am bad and the cycle goes round and round and round. It's crazy when you think about it like that, isn't it? See, the truth is, a lot of us form who we think we are from what people say about us or to us, don't we? Depending on what people have said to you or about you, you form an understanding of who you think you are and then that affects how you behave. See, if people say to you that you're funny or good at sport or attractive or whatever it is, it affects how you behave, doesn't it? You think, I'm funny, I speak up in class. I'm not funny, I don't say anything in class ever. I'm attractive, I post a lot of selfies on Facebook and Insta. You think, I'm not attractive, my DP isn't even a picture of me. Some kids think, I'm good at sport, I love PE. Others are like, I'm terrible, I'm uncoordinated, it's my worst fear, I bring a note every week for sport. And it is the case, isn't it, that your identity, who you think you are, influences how you behave. That's why so many of you are so addicted to Facebook and Instagram because you're constantly getting feedback on who you are. You post something funny and no one likes it. You think, I must not be funny. You post a picture and people make all comments about it. You're like, I must be pretty. And you're constantly getting feedback on that. And what I want to put to you tonight is, if you understand who Jesus is, if you understand just these two sentences in Romans, it changes all of that. It changes your understanding of who God is towards you. It changes your understanding of who you are before other people. And most importantly, it takes you out of the cycle where who you are depends on what other people say about you or to you. Because if this is true, what we're reading in Romans 12, and Jesus died for you and brought you into relationship with God, that is the thing that matters more than anything else. And so my prayer, and I'm about to pray, my prayer is that you'll get that tonight, whether you're a Christian, whether you say you're a Christian, or whether you are unconvinced about Jesus. I pray that you will understand it tonight and that it will revolutionise your life. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a revolutionary God, that you overturn our lives and this world through Jesus. We thank you that because of the cross, we can know your love and acceptance and be totally changed by it. And I pray that tonight, that our minds would not be on trivial things, but on you and your glory and the wonder of the cross. We pray that what would be most clear tonight is that you are the God who loves and who brings us back into relationship with you. Amen. Well, Romans 12 1 to 2 says this as we read through the passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
What it means to follow Jesus is to give your whole life to him. It's not like joining the Boy Scouts. It's not like signing up for a mailing list. It's a major thing. To follow Jesus means every part of your life now belongs to him. Every part. Your thoughts, actions, deeds, the way you interact with other people, relationships, how you do sex, alcohol, all that stuff belongs to him. That's what it means when it says offer your life as a living sacrifice. Your whole life now belongs to Jesus. And many of you are probably here thinking, that's exactly why I don't want to follow him. That's the reason why I'm not interested in this kind of thing. Or that might even be the reason why you say you're a Christian to make your parents happy, but in the end you just do what you like with your week and live as though Jesus doesn't exist. You get it. You're like, I understand. Yeah, uh, living for Jesus means giving my whole life to him, a living sacrifice, but that doesn't sound very good to me. But, but if you pay attention to what it says, what he says here is revolutionary. See, before he says, give your life as a living sacrifice, he says, in view of God's mercy. Most people don't get that. Most people think that living for Jesus is, if I do all the stuff that he says, and I sacrifice all these things, and I miss out on all this stuff, then God will accept me. That's what it means to live as a living sacrifice. I get it, and it sounds like it sucks. It's like a terrible job with a great retirement plan. You have a rubbish life now, and then you get to go to heaven in the end. But that's not what it is. That's religion. Religion is when you say, if I obey God, he will accept me. But that's not what it says here. It says, in view of God's mercy. See, most people think that a relationship with Jesus is like a bad relationship. I had a friend in high school who was going out with a girl, and he was the kind of guy who wanted to show that he was like, he wasn't all swept up in it. So he was the kind of boyfriend who was like, oh, is it your birthday? Oh, I hope someone got you something nice, right? He was that kind of boyfriend. He was the kind of boyfriend who forgot anniversaries, whether they were, you know, month or six month or whatever those kind of anniversaries were. He tried to take it pretty easy until he got dumped. And after that, he was like, I will do anything to get this relationship back together. And eventually they did. But the power balance had totally changed. She now had all the power, right? So when he was kind of, you know, trying to suggest what they do and say like, you know, uh, do you want to go to the movies this week or something like that? She'd be like, no. Nah. And he's like, yeah, I know. I hate movies too. And, and he's like, hey, I was thinking about going out with the boys on Friday night. But, and she, he could just see by the look on her face that that was a no-go. And he'd be like, but I don't even really like hanging out. I just want to hang out with you, baby, right? And so the, the whole sort of balance of the relationship had changed. But it was so painful to watch because the whole time, he was just in agony. He was in constant fear of being dumped. And it wasn't really a relationship in the end. It was just slavery. And most people think that's what it is to follow Jesus. That he is there and he's got a list of rules and you're there just trying to do your best, just trying to please him all the time and you're just filled with guilt and it's like a bad relationship and he could break you off at any time and send you to hell forever and that's what it's like. It's a life of stress and fear and guilt and that's what it is to follow Jesus. No, thank you. But that's not what this passage says. It says, in view of God's mercy towards you. His mercy towards you is the basis of your relationship, not your performance. In view of God's mercy, live your lives as living sacrifices. It says you are already accepted by God. If you know Jesus, if you're in a relationship with him, you are accepted by his mercy. Now live it out. That's totally different. 
But of course, all of this really is meaningless unless we actually understand what mercy is. So what are we talking about when we talk about mercy? Well, when Paul says, Paul who wrote this letter Romans says, in view of God's mercy, he's got the rest of the book in mind. And if we go back to to chapter 3, it'll come up on the screen for you. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first thing to understand when we understand mercy is sin. Jesus says, you're a sinner. Straight up. That's revolutionary on its own, isn't it? We are so used to being told that we're awesome. I used to teach PE, and half of the curriculum is this stuff about self-concept and self-esteem and you're amazing and believe in yourself and all this kind of stuff, and none of the kids bought it when I went through it. They know it. I know it. Everybody hates going through it. We both wish we could just throw out the book and go play footy, right? But in the end, you have to go through it, and it is this weird thing, isn't it, that we're constantly being told, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, but Jesus says to you, you're not. You're a sinner. I know you. I know your thoughts, I know your intentions, I know your heart, and I know you've sinned. And in some ways that's refreshing, isn't it? He says, don't worry about pretending, don't worry about making up excuses about it. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. We don't have to guess about who's the sinner in the room or who's done worse stuff than anyone else. No, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God knows you. And he tells you the truth. Sometimes people don't depict it in that way. I went by a church one time and it had a sign out the front and it was all done up in sort of the Facebook sort of style because I'm guessing they were trying to be kind of relevant or whatever it was and there was a little logo with like like the Facebook sort of hand thing pointing upwards as if to God and it just said, you have one friend request, indicating like God wants to be your friend. And the depiction of God from that is like God is up in heaven just desperate for friends. He's like stalking your profile. He's doing whatever he can because he'll just do anything to be friends with you. He's just, he's just a fan in the seats just cheering you on. But the Bible says no. He knows you and he calls it out. He says you're a sinner. You have sinned. And there's consequences for that. See, a lot of the people who are trying to tell us that we're awesome are also trying to tell us stuff. Nike will tell you that you can be the next LeBron Knowing full well that you can't. If you're under six foot, you have almost zero chance of making your local team, let alone the NBA. And they know that. But if you watch an ad and you feel like you could be LeBron, you will buy their gear. But Jesus is honest with you. He's not trying to sell you anything. And so he tells you straight, you are a sinner. And if we miss that, we miss the beautiful part of the message. See, here's what comes next. He doesn't just leave us there and say you're a sinner and leave you condemned. Look at verses 3, 23 to 25. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. It says, You're a sinner. You are separated from God. And that means separated eternally, separated from life itself. That means hell. That means under his anger forever. And yet Jesus came as a man to die in your place, to take the penalty that you deserved so you can be in relationship with God. When you think of the cross as Jesus died, we are meant to think that should have been me. Think of it a little bit this way. 
I heard a story of a ship that was off the coast of England in some pretty heavy weather and they called in that they were in distress. That didn't mean that they were having like emotional troubles or that sort of thing. When you say your ship is in distress, it's serious, you're sinking. And so they call in signifying that they're in distress. Rescue chopper comes out and the men who are on the ship move sort of to the front of the ship so they can actually be hauled off. The rescue worker comes down, takes the harness off himself, puts it on the first guy, hoists him up, goes up to the helicopter. Second guy, third guy, fourth guy, fifth guy, the whole bunch of them actually get saved. But when the winch comes back to collect him, a wave comes over the front of the ship and takes him off and he is never seen again. And the guys in that helicopter at that moment, as they are safe and dry, would have looked down and seen that happen and thought, that should have been me. He should have been home safe with his family, watching TV, doing whatever he wanted. But instead he came out and he was on that ship where I should have been. That should have been me washed away. And yet here I am safe. Do you catch that? When you look at the cross, what we're meant to say, as we, as we understand Jesus dying there, that's not a sinner dying for his own sin. Jesus had no sin. We're meant to look at that and say, that should have been me for eternity. Jesus was beaten and tortured. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. And he died for our sin. And what we're meant to think as we see that is that should have been me. How great is the mercy of God that instead of you facing the punishment, Jesus has faced it and he's completely set you free. You are free from guilt, free from sin, entirely in right relationship with God and you have done nothing for it. There really is no message in the world like that, is there? Religion is all based on what you can do for God to earn his favour. Jesus is all about what he has done to bring you into relationship with God. Even your schoolyard works by performance, doesn't it? You get accepted or you get into the right groups because you act, talk, speak, think, dress a particular way. And you have to know the right codes for your school. But Jesus says, you're accepted with God because I died for you. There is no message like that in the world. And if that's true, then who else or what else would you want to live for? See, Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, live your lives as a a living sacrifice for him. Live your whole life for him. Because if it's true that he really has had that kind of mercy on you and he has died for you and he's brought you into relationship with God and that cannot be changed forever, who else would you want to live for? Who else would be more worthy to live for? What else would be more worthy to live for? In running a seminar at a, at a high school, I finished it by saying, and I did the same thing for the same seminar every time, I'd finish it by saying, look, what is holding you back from actually following Jesus? And when we did that, I was in a small group and a girl said, "Um, if I'm meant to give my whole life to him, how do I know I can trust him? It's a a good question, isn't it? She understood the seriousness of it. If you're really going to give your whole life and even your eternity to someone, your belief about what happens after death, you've got to know that you can trust them. If Jesus died for you, if he really did die for you on that cross, if he was the reason that God has extended mercy to you, then he can be trusted, can't he? With your whole life. 
Jesus, if you're to follow him, Jesus does rule over your whole life. That means everything you do, how you do money, relationships, sex, partying, all that kind of stuff comes under his rule and his way. But if he has died for you, if he has not held back what was most precious to him, his own life, then even his commands for you must be out of love, mustn't they? What other reason would he have to do it? See, in religion, you just do things because you're trying to get something from God. But here in Romans 12, what we see is it's a relationship. Because God has had mercy on you, you give your life to him because you want to. When I was in year eight, I had a, I had a fake conversion to Christianity. I was in year eight, and I'd made a rule with myself for some reason. I don't know why it was, but I'd, I'd always thought in my head, I, um, I wanted to be able to tell my kids that I'd never done drugs. And in year eight, I broke that promise to myself, and I felt so bad about it. Me and my friends had gotten into the weed, and I started to feel really guilty about it. And I started to feel bad about the fact that I'd, I'd broken my promise to myself, and I'd broken relationship with God, and all this kind of stuff. I really wasn't a Christian at the time. Um, and so what I decided to do was, I was like, because I've done something bad, I can't just stop doing it. That's not enough. I've got to make up for it. And so what I decided I would do was, I, I was going to stop smoking weed, and I was going to say, every time someone offered me some, I'd say, no, I'm a Christian. You can imagine how awkward that was, right? As you kind of do that, people, people, everyone's getting their smoke on, and then I just say to them, no, no, I'm a Christian, everybody, and the room just goes silent, and people just start to slowly just back out of the room, right? And I did that because I thought I could make it up to God, because that's what relationship with Him was like. But it didn't last. It was only in year 12 when I actually started to understand the cross and that Jesus had died for me and loved me and had shown me mercy and had set me free that I actually wanted to follow him. And so the weekend after I became a Christian, I went back to school and everyone went out in the morning and it was the time when, um, when every morning before school we would go and smoke and I went out there and that morning, the first weekend after I was a Christian, I did it. And I went back to school and I felt bad, but not like before. This time I was like, I actually don't want to do that. And not because of some kind of guilt or because I feel like God's going to punish me or I need to make it up to him. I'm like, no, I really don't want to do that anymore. I actually want to follow Jesus. I think he is my king and he's actually worth following. And from then on, I did, not out of guilt, but because I knew how much he had loved me and set me free. See, Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy and how good he is to, to you, give your life to him. That's what it actually means. And see, as that happens, what starts to happen is God transforms you. See, Romans 12 verse 2 says this. Read along with me. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Once you start to understand God's mercy towards you on the cross, it starts to change you. It starts to change the way you think and act. It transforms your mind. It transforms the way that you behave. You have a new identity. You are now, your worth is now in who God is and how much love he has shown to you rather than what other people say to you or about you. And it actually begins to change the way you act and think. See, the truth is, I reckon most people, and I think this is fair to say for high school and even beyond really, but most people are almost entirely ruled by the fear of what others think about them. I remember I had a friend of mine at school who went to a party 
and it was year 10, it was the first time he decided that he was, he was going to drink. And he'd showed up to this party, and it was obvious that he was trying to impress people, but that he was also nervous about it. But the embarrassing thing was, by about half an hour into it, he was gone. He was on the, on the driveway of the party, kind of slapping the concrete and just yelling like weird, obscene things. And, and it was kind of embarrassing, right? People just started to back away from him a bit. But can I tell you the most embarrassing thing about that story? Was that he hadn't actually drank a drop of alcohol the whole night. Yeah, I know, right? You laugh, right? He was pretending. He was too afraid to drink, but he also wanted to impress people. And so he did that, right? Just so people would like him. And the funny thing is, as we hear that story, we're all inclined to laugh at him. And yet, how many of us have done the same? How many of us have changed what we're about to say, or about to wear, or about to do, because we thought someone might think badly of us? You know, as you start to understand what Jesus has done for you, that he has accepted you, that the God of the universe loves you, then what other people think starts to fade into insignificance, doesn't it? I mean, the God who created the sun and stars, the God who created this planet, the God who knew you before you even existed, loves you, has set you free and sent Jesus to die for you. And you're going to care about what that guy or that girl thinks? Forget it. See, it actually starts to transform you and change you. Your worth is in because Jesus died for you and has taken away your sin. And no one can take that away from you. No one can change that. As you understand God's mercy on the cross, you become less concerned with yourself and more concerned with him and with loving other people. It transforms you. And so here's the challenge to you tonight. If you are here and you say you are a Christian, and you say you understand the cross, and you say you understand God's mercy towards you, do you look any different to the people around you? And I don't mean physically, I mean your life. Are you ruled by the exact same things that they are? Do you go after, do you follow after the exact same things that they do? Are you just conforming? Because if you say you know the mercy of God, it must have an impact on your life. It's kind of like this, if, you, if a friend came up to you and you said to them, how's your day? And they said, good, oh, actually bad, I, um, I was hit by a Mack truck. And you, it would be a bad day. And you look at them and physically they just, they look fine. Like there's no sort of injuries, no blood, nothing. Um, and you say, sorry, sorry, did you just say you got hit by a Mack truck? And they're like, yeah, I did. And like, and like a, a half hour ago. And like, yeah, and you're like, was it going like 2K an hour? Like, you seem fine. That doesn't seem to match up. And they're like, no, no, it was, it was going 100K an hour. I actually got hit full on by the truck. At that point, you would just say, look, I'm, I love you as my friend, but I, I don't believe you. I don't think that's what happened. Because you would know if that kind of thing hit a person, there would be an impact, right? If you say, I know the God of the universe loves me, died on the cross for me and has set me free forever and your life is totally unchanged by it, you really have to question if that's the case. If you long just as much for other people's approval, have you really understood how much God has loved you? If you live for and go after the exact same things that everyone else does, 
Have you really understood how much God loves you? Have you really understood his mercy? I've been in youth ministry long enough to know it's a particular problem for teenagers to say, I'm a Christian, but have never really understood it and never really followed Christ. The number that walk away as you get towards year 12 and beyond is crazy, isn't it? And I want to say to you, just because you like youth group does not mean that you have understood God's mercy towards you. Just because you like your leaders doesn't mean that you're a Christian. To be a follower of Jesus is to understand the mercy he has shown you at the cross. And that started to transform and change your life. If that's you and you're in that position tonight, I'm going to give you a chance to respond in a bit. But if you're here and you're someone who's not a Christian and you're totally unconvinced, I want to ask you, are you sure about this stuff? Or are you basing your opinions on what you've heard someone maybe said about who Jesus was? Because if that's the case, you need to know for yourself. Every week, I head out and I just ask random people about their worldview. I just ask them what they believe about certain things. And when I get to the question of what do you think happens after death, the responses I get are crazy. A lot of people will say, oh, I, th- I think there's something more there, but I guess we find out when we die. Or um, I'm not really sure, I've never really thought about it that much. If someone said to you, they were about to jump off a cliff blindfolded and just hope that there was something soft to land on, what would your advice be to them? You would say, think it through, wouldn't you? If you are heading to the end of your life and we don't know when that's coming and you are jumping through it blindfolded and you have no idea what you're basing your opinions on, you need to find out. You need to investigate it. If Jesus is false and he's a liar and all that kind of stuff, then make sure you're sure and it's not based on what someone else said about him. Tonight, make a decision to find out for yourself what he's about. And if you came here and you're not a Christian, but tonight for the first time it's actually started to make sense to you, and you're actually starting to think, yeah, I actually think some of this stuff, in fact all of it, is true. For the first time I actually understand, I think Jesus isn't just some historical figure, but he really died for me. Then I want you to respond tonight as well. There's a, a girl at our church who, um, who really, before she came to church, I mean she's tattooed head to toe. And it took, her, it took her five attempts just to walk in the building at church. She would come to church and park outside of it and then just chicken out and run away. She thought there's no way that Christian people or the Christian God is going to accept someone like me. And as she's walked through the Gospel of Mark, she said just last week, she said, it feels like I'm talking about and reading about a real person and that he really has died for me and forgiven me. That's what it's like to come to new life. Jesus seems something distant and irrelevant and all of a sudden he's very real to you. If that's you tonight, I'm going to give you a chance to respond as well. And lastly, if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, my question for you is, what is stopping you from living a more radical life for him? If you know his mercy and how much he has done you, what's holding you back? Really, is it the fear of other people that's holding you back from being transformed by the message of the cross? I've got a challenge for you over these holidays. Holiday time oftentimes is a time when, when teens bottom out. That's my experience from youth. So why don't you make these holidays, make, make a resolution to do this, to look deeper into God's word and his mercy than you ever have before, 
and to share that message of mercy with more people than you ever have before. Right? To look deeper into his word and the message of mercy than you ever have before and to share it with more people than you ever have before. And don't see if, and see if God doesn't change you through that. See if you don't begin to be transformed and if people's opinions of you starts to diminish as you understand the greatness of how much God has loved you. When you take the challenge to know his mercy more deeply and to share it with more people than ever these holidays if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus.